Loading Nerd Track Program. Listen when ready. All right. Welcome to the Nerd Trick Podcast, everybody. No witty banter this time. We're diving right in because we have some fun stuff to do. Um, but I am Jeff, your host. I'm also here with Phil. Hey, everybody. And and David is here as well. Hi, Jeff. Hi, David. <laughs> the other guy. The other guy. That's making me watch Firefly. Ugh. Fucking ass. <laughs> I know, right? I know. But... Sound, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> um... This is going to be a special episode. Um, we've done a few before, but this is going to be our Science of Star Trek uh, special. Uh, because as fans, we have questions, and we reached out to other fans, and they have questions, and we wanted people smarter than us to answer them. So we found some of those people who are smarter than, who are much smarter than us, and know yes, what yes. they're talking about. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, so they very kindly decided to come on our show and talk about uh, Star Trek. So we have two guests tonight. Our first one is Dr. Dr. Aaron McDonald. Welcome. Hi. Hey. Uh, and then we also have Tamara Robertson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I know we both, just had Tamara. guests, but never together. Yeah. That's true. Tamara, we had you on last time for Galaxy Quest for our holiday special. Oh, uh, uh-huh. jealous. Oh. And then, uh, and I feel bad, but I think the last time we had you on, Dr. Aaron, was for Spock's brain in TOS. It absolutely was. That was yeah. delightful. Although now that I heard you did Galaxy Quest, I'm angry, but it's fine. <laughs> we can do another Wait, one. I didn't do Galaxy Quest. I did Spaceballs. Oh, Spaceballs. I'm sorry. Spaceballs. Jeez. Yeah. It was Spaceballs. I also want to come for Galaxy Quest. We're a Galaxy okay. Quest viewing party now. You That's okay. So we all get That's to okay. have that. Yay. It wasn't the Star Wars holiday special, so. Yeah. <laughs> We did that as well. We made my wife do that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Sorry, I don't. We tortured that's why her she hasn't that, been on the show. So. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not related. No, it's not. Um, but welcome to to both of you, and thank you so much for doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, if people don't know, uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald, you are the official Star Trek or official science advisor for Star Trek. Yes, that's right. I My background's in astrophysics, and now I work, yeah, as the franchise science advisor, or in my head, I'm the uh, Starfleet science officer. <laughs> I like that. As <laughs> close as I'm ever going to get. <laughs> Heck yeah. If, if you ever need a Starfleet nursing advisor, I will do it for free. I'm okay <laughs> with yeah. that. I, I will volunteer as tributes. Engineering advisor I'll, as well. There you I'll, go. I'll be the, the ship IT guy. <laughs> <laughs> Easy there, Barkley. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of fits. It kind of fits. Um, I want you to do. <laughs> and then Tamara, you are our resident engineer, but you you've done a ton of stuff. But I mean, but what are your other specialties as well? Uh, so most people know me for MythBusters, uh, but I do science of at all the major cons, uh, everything from the science of 
Skywalker. Sorry, don't throw bananas at me. To you know, <laughs> science of Game of Thrones and and things like that. So I'm super excited to do uh, science of Trek. Like obviously, the last couple times you guys have had me on, you know that I'm a big nerd. My entire origin story is around Scotty as an engineer. So like this. This is where, where I've been trying to get to my entire career. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm shocked that Tamara and I have not been on a panel together before at a con. <laughs> That's so what I was thinking, like too, when we have to introduce you guys to each other. <laughs> like, wait a second. What? Yeah. First, but not last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, and I know entertainment is kind of a small world as well. Um, it's usually like a friend of a friend knows somebody. Um, but like, were you guys aware of each other? Like in science circles? No. Not really. Yeah. Other than just kind of hearing names here and there. But again, yeah. it's if I mean, it the various convention circuits, you know, everyone kind of has their regulars and mm. we just have never crossed paths. So it's serendipitous. I love it. I'm excited. The podcast, bringing people together. That's yeah. right. That, that is our goal. <laughs> I mean, I um, literally just found out from Jeff that there was a Star Trek cruise. And then yes. we just talked about it having whiskey tastings. And now I'm like, I what have I've been doing a lot of things wrong with my life up until this point. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and I'm going to blatantly say that, um, Dr. Aaron, your, uh, you did a lecture on time travel and astronomy on the cruise. And those are some of my favorite. Yours and Dr. Norris were just Thank fantastic. You. It was really fun. I'm so impressed at the attendance for those. Like they put us on yeah. good stages and like, we have a pretty good showing. Like there's a lot of passion and love for science within the Star Trek community. So it's really great to see. That's Absolutely. Awesome. And I th cause you did a science trivia a couple nights and those were packed. Were like, packed. Yes. Yeah. It was fun. Uh, it was I fun. did. I did also get engaged at the end of one of them. <gasps> so tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> so it being packed may have been um, part of my partner orchestrating the whole thing. <laughs> Oh, but yes, it was cookie. very exciting. It was very <laughs> surprising and it was delightful. So I was glad to be able to share it with the, the Trek nerd cruise community. It was great. Really fun. Absolutely. It was even more reason to celebrate. Exactly. Exactly. Very awesome. Good. Cool. Um, well, I know um, we got a ton of questions from Twitter and TikTok and all over. So uh, let's dive in. Let's nerd out about stuff. Um, since I'm hosting, I'm going to put out my question first because I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so this will be for Dr. Aaron. Um, so there's an episode in TNG called Suspicions. Uh, it's one where Crusher invites a Ferengi scientist on. He's developed a shield to go into the corona of a star. And there's like, and there's kind of like a murder mystery. Um, <laughs> but my question is, why is that important? And what can we learn from that? Yeah, I, I love that episode, first of all. Like not even just from the science in it of the star and the exploration but just like about scientists working together and like what their suspicions and all the cultural differences because just slight tangent but i when i worked in the ligo collaboration doing gravitational waves i mean that was like an international collaboration of a thousand scientists from all over the world and there are definitely cultural differences <laughs> in, oh, in sure. uh, fun and surprising ways and so i really like that episode because i think it's very true to that culture but um what's interesting about solar physics and particularly studying the corona is like we don't quite understand how the temperature differentiations like the temperature grades on the sun really work so like the surface of the sun is hot it's the surface of the sun yeah. <laughs> but then the atmosphere that corona is like 
really hot, like factors of 10 higher than that. And so we don't really know why that is, because that's kind of counterintuitive to think of, right? Because you think of like the surface heats up and then it heats up the atmosphere, but it cools off mm. as it goes into space. But the surface of the sun is much cooler than the atmosphere around it, which is the corona. And so then there's it, also, yeah. Sorry. So is it comparable to Earth then? Uh, we have different gradient layers in our atmosphere we think so, but this is this temp- is why we send. Wise. Yeah, this is why we send solar probes. Um, you know, we have one that was just kind of launched recently that studies that to try to see how many gradients they are, how fixed they are. You know, mm. when we sort of look at the sun, which you should never do with your own eyes, <laughs> but yes. when we look we'll at it, we can only get so much information. And um, and so trying to figure out where those different gradients are, where they exist, what could be causing them, and then there are things like you know, we have coronal mass ejections, which are like super solar flares. Solar flares are bright flares of light, but coronal mass ejections are like where the sun basically spits at you. And like a burp. A star burp, <laughs> exactly, as, as mentioned in season three of Star Trek Discovery. I, I remember that from your trivia. I remember that one. Um, but yeah, they those radiation particles then hit us if we're in the path of a coronal mass ejection. And so understanding what makes up the corona, why it's hot, like there's so much that we still have to learn, even just about our own sun, that it's still relevant science even today. You know, TNG was 30 some years ago, and it's mm-hmm. still <laughs> outstanding questions. So still relevant. Because then, I mean, obviously we would use it for our sun, but then, I mean, we could also explore other stars as well. Do But then do other types of stars have different... Um, types of atmosphere or different things in their corona or just but we're not sure yet good question i would say for the most part we're not sure we can see a lot of like the spectra of different stars so it's almost like you know when you look at it you see a certain color but you can break that down into like across the electromagnetic spectrum you can see where it peaks and where it troughs and it's kind of like radio frequencies right you pick up different frequencies of the sun as you're going and so we can study the spectra from that but we have some technologies where you can use like a solar shield to block out the main part of a star and then see the atmosphere around that. But that's only for like the closest ones. And even then it's not that great. So um, that's certainly in that future exploration of neighboring stars, that would be a big thing to study because we know where our star fits in the big picture of other stars, other types of stars out there. But down to those details, we don't know if like, a mid-grade G-type star like ours has that same atmosphere profile as like mm. an O-type star or any of these different ones. That Like when I say those names, that's like the red or the blue stars, you know, the ones that are really bright or really dim. We don't really know if it's the same thing. We got to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We got to get, get there. Or get better telescopes. But yeah, it's <laughs> got to yeah. get a lot closer. But then we can use our star as kind of like a baseline because that's the one that we know the, we most, know the most about. Right. Yeah, that makes yep, sense. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even then, there's still more to learn. Right. Absolutely. Crazy. Yeah, because it's it's hard to study something that you shouldn't look at that if the closer you get, you burn up and die. So that could be hard to study it. <laughs> well, and the fun thing, this will keep coming up as we talk about like sort of space science, but The fun thing about astrophysics is that you can't create a sun in a lab, right? You can model it, but you're modeling it based on what we observe. And so it's always like 
back and forth between just seeing what the universe gives us and then us trying to apply our physics knowledge to that and try mm. to replicate something. So trying to see if we can use our knowledge of physics and our knowledge of the sun to try to create that temperature profile. And that so all of those things, this is kind of the weird nature of astrophysics. That's so cool. Yeah. It's always one of those things like you, I, I always, I love science and I love learning about like astronomy. I was never smart enough or good enough in math to go that way, but I just love those like tidbits of information. It's, it's just cool. Well, and it gets you thinking. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Can I actually ask a question too? Sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> Please. So, so, um, is there like the other part of this too, is when you're sending these probes out, like from a materials standpoint, understanding what materials that we already he have here on earth or what developments we have to make to be able to withstand these crazy temperature profiles. So was it something where when we first initially started studying them, we kind of threw out our best and it wasn't really good <laughs> enough to like bring us back data or like, what was that, what was that process? Yeah, so usually it's just been to try to send probes to like other parts of our solar system. So like the Lagrange mm -hmm. points where it can sort of get a different angle than we do here on earth. But the recent solar probe that, that actually started getting, I think the closest to the sun we've ever got. And you're exactly right. It's about understanding the materials that we have and, and even some of like the, I don't know if it's this one, but I know that big solar flare that hit in, um, it was a coronal mass ejection that hit in 2012. We didn't even really study it until 2014 because we weren't in the path of it then. But like mm. even that kind of blew out the sensors on one of these solar probes. So there's still only so much they can take because we have to build, you know, like you said, the materials that we have and what we understand, but also those unknowns. Like we don't know how bad it could get. So yeah. Mm. Intriguing. Material science is like a whole thing. It really yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you can just be, or you can just be Scotty and just speak the rest of the formula for uh, clear aluminum, transparent aluminum <laughs> into your mouth. <laughs> Time travel. That's what we need to do next. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> We'll get to time travel, I promise. I know David is just itching for a time travel discussion. I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. He's itching. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's shift to Tamara. Um, so I know you do, a, um, we talked a little bit about like kind of the 3D printing and basically isn't, mm -hmm. as far as replicators are concerned, is that our, our 3D printers that we have now uh, an ancestor of that? Is that kind of like a forebearer of that? It's intriguing. So one of my favorite things about sci-fi is this chicken and the egg model, right? Like did sci-fi inspire the tech? Did the tech inspire the sci-fi, right? And like Star Trek is this like, I don't, not apex predators, the wrong thing, but kind of, right? Like all of the tech that we have <laughs> is because Star Trek inspired so many of the people that are now in seven. Like I'm, I'm in engineering because of Star Trek. Like and growing up with that, so many of my friends that are in it, and I'm sure so many of us here. Like it's why we went down this rabbit hole because we wanted to be able to make all of these things. And so, replicators are definitely something that time and time again, when you see things evolving in the 3D printing world, almost every single origin story comes back to, well, we were having drinks and we were talking about the new science that came out. And then we started talking about Star Trek and the replicator. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's such a cool thing because I remember 
gosh, I want to say it was like 2017. Now I was sitting at a NASA launch in the like in the control room. They let us like come in to kind of see this launch happen. And they were talking about 3D printing food. And at the time, they were just starting to really put large small business grants out there for people that thought that they could start replicating things that would get us to Mars, right? Because when you think about it, the amount of time that you have to have from a shelf life standpoint alone of your components is is crazy you know we're looking at you know n- you know the third you know nine nine months right or something to, to be able to get um anything on uh, on a walmart shelf and here we're trying to now get a shelf life onto a mars shelf for nasa right so their holy grail at the time they said was pizza you know because they're like if we can get it so that our our astronauts can be up there and they can make a pizza that would be what we want to get and so one of the biggest issues that we have in space travel is that when you package food down to the point that it's going to be able to make it so that it can be lightweight it's going to have the shelf life that they need for the journey it's going to take up you know again as little space as possible um you start to lose a lot of the nutrients you start to lose obviously the taste the facsimiles all of that and so they actually found, I, I want to say that the company was like Systems and Materials Research Consultancy. And so they actually got the first bid to be able to like make this go. And the first thing they did was make chocolate. Uh, and then they uh-huh. finally hit that holy grail of like pizza. But of course, it's like three nozzles. They've got cheese coming. They've got grain coming. And they've got the, the sauce coming. So it's trying to now take that even further and be like, okay, how do you get your carbs and proteins and nutrients into a powder form that's gonna last? And like, I actually like right before this pulled it up because it's been a little while since I've talked about 3D printing on the science of, and they're now at a point where the powders that they're making, and that's for the carbs, proteins, macro and micronutrients can last up to 30 years on the shelf, which is like, it's crazy. Um, to hear that, but it's like, it, like of course, I always think when I think of Trek, I always think about Riker going to get his drinks, you know, you're, everyone's always cheersing, <laughs> right? And that's actually been a really, really cool place where the replicator actually was the origin story. So there is the ability to 3D print beverages mm. and they came up to this idea. They basically, um, we've, we've learned so much about food science and the science of taste and smell over the last decade, like they really started to realize that only 1% of a beverage is what the taste of a beverage is derived from. And so if you can like figure out what those little ingredients are that make that taste, then just you just have to take 1% of the beverage and the rest of it's just gonna be the water or the carbonation and all of that. And so there's this guy, Dave, Fr- I think it's Friedberg or Friedberg, he like openly admits that him and his buddies were talking about that research study that had just gotten published, were drinking drinks and started talking about the replicator. And then by the next morning, just hit the ground running and trying to figure out how to micro process and get down to these tiny forms of the thing. So now they're actually able on like a sub microliter basis, they're able to make things like cocktails, seltzers, wines, beers, soda, like tea, anything and everything. And they're trying, what's what's really cool is that like people think, okay, this is cool because it's like a Star Trek thing and we're making it real life. But 
The bigger implication when it comes to environment and sustainability is huge. Because if you think about just the soda industry, how much empty like yeah. bottles we could now ship. If we can just yeah. put only 1% in and, and then you mm -hmm. go and you fill it up at home, or if you're now able to just kind of curate it, but in cartridge for a beverage, you know, like this mm -hmm. could make it so that we're not transiting these big bottles. It could make it so that we're getting rid of plastic waste. Like, it's it's just such a mind blowing thing to see the replicator happen, but in a way that could actually not only you know bring the future to us, but also maybe strongly impact the future for sustainability, like within yeah. the world. Wow, absolutely. But yeah, well, it's everywhere. I, this and that's just saying, food and and beverages, which was the majority of the show for a long time, was just food and beverages, <laughs> right? But like obviously is. aerospace, three D yeah. print parts and tools and all of that, like. PNG is 3D printing skin to do non-animal testing. Like there's so many cool applications that are happening similar to the replicator of like later Star Trek years too. <laughs> well, like you said, pizza, pizza's the holy grail. We already have that. My kid had like a Lunchables the other day. There was just a little pizza. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was in the Air Force in the late 90s, that was the big push for military MREs for guys out in the field was they for 20 30 years they've been trying to make a pizza and finally when around the turn of the century we had a, a oh, decent one that. actually i know right a good one finally came out and that was considered like the holy grail for mres for guys on the battlefield was to be able to have pizza that's totally shelf stable is good tasting still maintains its nutritional value and it it's phenomenal i mean it actually so tastes cool. like a pizza doesn't taste like a piece of cardboard, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. It kind of makes me I always love the free fruits. They were like yeah. fuzzy and weird, but I loved them as a child. They were just, <laughs> my dad would that. He'd end up like going into his MREs and all the fruits would be gone. Gone. <laughs> so I have a question that ties on to the replicator thing. Once we're done with the, the food part of the replicator, because it does get no, into some ahead. of the weirder. So transporters. Do they operate by breaking down the person, taking them and reassembling them on the other side? Or are you essentially deconstructing the person at one end and replicating the person at the other? Can I take this one? Yes. Please. <laughs> <laughs> You've never been asked this before. So the fun part is like Star Trek has never really definitively said one way or another. There's like plenty of evidence for either case, whether it's like you said, breaking down and like mapping where all of that is and then building that person out of other material and just sending the data for not data data but like sending the information <laughs> for where all the molecules should go or if it's like actually sending the body particles right if it's because like one is like the you. willy wonka one right where he sends them through wonka vision and he like travels through right. the air and then he assembles <laughs> at the other end exactly and then, and then in like other cases you end up with two rikers right yep. <laughs> so right. yeah where yeah. the data yeah. itself is getting thing. scrambled yeah and but to, um, but to me it would seem like if they were if they were just basically sending the instructions for the person and then and then re-replicating them on the other side, mm -hmm. the transporter shouldn't have a range. Right. Which well, is the, well, but they but they seem to be able to ignore the range whenever it's convenient for the plot. Oh, so, yeah. Welcome to Star <laughs> <There's> Trek. Yeah. <laughs> obviously acceptance over 800 episodes. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. But like, oh, yeah. for the most part, they establish a range. And like, you can think of it scientifically. I mean, I can't talk about transporters without talking about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, because that's that's why transporters 
are never going to be a thing with our current knowledge of physics is because you can't know exactly where every single particle in your body is. But what Star Trek did brilliantly, which is one of my favorite science get arounds, is that the transporter has a Heisenberg compensator. Compensator. (laughs) And you ask me how that works. And my answer is it works very well. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Because I would Um, think that it would have to be that they transport the actual material, right? That's why you don't have to have a pad at the other end to have something that they replicate on, why you can transport right into a part of the ship or down onto a planet or anywhere. And I think it's certainly trending in that direction. I'm trying to think of the exact phrasing that we used in Prodigy when they first discover the transporters, but it's along those lines. I think that was kind of the most definitive thing that they said about how it works. And a lot of that is because they were moving into that future concept of being able to transport anywhere. As long as you have a way to break your body down that site to site, transport then you're at least able to do that but regardless with our knowledge of physics we still need to compensate for heisenberg's principle and so that's where i was going for with the distance thing too right is you can kind of extrapolate that to a a scientific explanation to why there's a distance limit is just because let's imagine you send the particles themselves you're going to increase your uncertainty for where all those particles are and ensure that all of them make it. That certainty is going to go down by a factor of the distance. Um, And so the further you get, the more dangerous it is. And so you're going to create a limit where you want to be 99.99% sure are the water. All the particles are going to make it. (laughs) Working in IT IT as a network engineer, I see how much data packets get lost and the concept of digitizing a person (laughs) and then having it get lost across the way. But how much storage space do you think it would take to digitize a person, even assuming that that's possible, would it take to store a digital person and then transfer them? (laughs) (laughs) So I looked into this. So like, cause I'm obsessed with those 3d body scanners. Uh, Like we're going to do a maker science on how those work, which actually like, to your point about pieces getting missed in transit, like 3D scanners, even when they're doing the dot plotting, like there's pieces that you don't see that don't get plotted. And I'm sure Riker would be very sad if they didn't make it to the other end. Um, but like, so, yes, like, uh, it's a little blurry, you know? Um, but so I, I was able to find that like 3D scanning of, of just a body, like external, um, is on average, uh, what it's about one gigabyte of data that you end up when you do a full 3d, um, 360 body scan, which actually isn't that much. Um, yeah, that's but, lower than I would have expected. <laughs> but when you look at the brain, so it's a question of like, what do we consider the, the human entity, right? So if you look at the consciousness, there was actually a Stanford study done where they found that there was, let me see, I want to make sure I say this right. There's 1 trillion bytes per terabyte. There's 74 terabytes overall in the uh, cerebral cortex. And so if you then go further, they were able to find that the total brain, I did a lot of math because I was very excited. This is why I was a little bit late as well. I love this. (laughs) So the total brain overall is 2.5 petabytes of data. Now to put that in perspective, Yahoo built a two petabyte server and it was the largest one of the time that was that was running. And the reason that they have that is so that they can study the behavior of half a billion monthly visitors. So like our brain is storing more than that. 
Now, awesome. if you take the 2.5 petabytes of data, that would be equivalent to 2.5 million gigabytes. So I wanted to get to yeah. something that we all understood, right? Gigabytes, yeah. megabytes, we know from our computers. Now, there's eight gigabits per gigabyte, right? So yeah. NASA internet can do 91 gigabits per second. Now, the average home is only 42 uh, megabits per second. So we're, we're like much bigger than that. So if that's going to then go ahead, like if we were able to use that, then we could transfer one human brain in 2.5 days. Just the brain though, not the body. Just the brain, <laughs> Just the but, the bod but the body was only one gigabyte. So we got that super quick if we're at 91 gigabytes a, a second, right? <laughs> so, so, so our like, brain is the holdup. <laughs> it's it's gonna be that consciousness, right? So we have to determine like, what what part of the replication matters most and well if it's Riker, it's probably not the brain part but like you know for everyone else it's the brain long transport cycle <laughs> you said the gigabyte was a scan of just the outside essentially just your skin if you were going to try and yeah. transport the entire like, thing you're now uh, multiplying that by some kind of volume organs. equation at least fluid yes. yeah that. everything i wanted That's to like, try to find some mri data on how many gigabytes each of those scans were but it was like i was finding per organ and i was like okay i don't have enough time to get all of this before but i will find that for next time i promise well yeah because it's like it's it's down to the resolution right of the mri yeah. which is oh, definitely yeah. not even to the atomic level so it's that buffer. All I could think of is that buffer window. And I'm picturing like the Windows 95, like loading screen. Right? <laughs> oh my like, God. like a circle just of spinny, death. spinny, spinny. Yeah. It's like the or, worst transporter. <laughs> or just that somebody coming out on the other end looking like a Minecraft character because the resolution's <laughs> right. too low or something. They couldn't. Right. Couldn't make it. Oh my goodness. High, high def transporting is a whole nother charge. That's a surcharge for that. <laughs> I do wonder, like, as we're getting into the like human genome project and CRISPR, like, is there going to be a time that we get to where like we're now combining like your human genome and the 3D printer is what's happening mm. rapid cycle on the other side for that replication process. Uh, but again, you're still not getting that stream of conscious. So it's like we need we need super fast, mm. super fast Internet. So I mean, could, and yeah. sorry. No, no, go ahead. Credit. We're just yes. ending this entire thing because like <laughs> to give credit to that, this is amazing. It's like the uh, the TNG um, horror spider Barkley episode, right? Because it's like I can imagine oh, yeah. there's some solution where your error rate on DNA, for example, you would supplement that by having like data packets in the transporter that you mm -hmm. would then just like if things didn't make it, you have a pretty good probability of at least being able to fill in those holes. But then it could all go terribly, terribly wrong very fast. <laughs> That'd be interesting because you could be like you could preload a lung, liver, heart and have those like standard mm. packages and just do the consciousness and the general kind of body shape, but then yeah, just give them lungs because generally we all have the same. Well, you'd bits. almost you'd almost end up with a sixth day, the movie the sixth day concept, where you have like blanks at the other end of humanoid things, and then yeah, they're just scanning the outside and then shaping it to make it look just the same and downloading, yeah. and then downloading <laughs> the consciousness into it, the memories well, and stuff. It's like yeah. an uh, altered carbon where you can just change uh, yeah, consciousness like via like a stack into different bodies. Yeah. And like Westworld, more, more where they're 3D example, printing yeah. bodies, and then you can have all yeah. the different 3D printed Whatever bodies you, you need, like Westworld. Yeah. See, now I'm so, starting to really sympathize with Hoshi here. Like, yeah. <laughs> just keep me as far away from that thing as possible. <laughs> well, and, oh, and we are so far off from this. I mean, like, what was it, like 2002 or three? we started mapping the human genome. 
and literally just a couple of days ago they finished. Yeah. Yep. So it's like, yeah. wow, we we've done one. Way to go, everybody. We did one. <laughs> Still, <I> took <laughs> <a 20 laughs> years. Well, let me ask you this, and this is for either of you. I um because David has brought this up since he knows more IT stuff, but I think roughly you said our computing power doubles every couple years. Right? Yeah, I forget the name of the law, but there's a general law that our computer storage size and computing power doubles every couple of years. And I was basing this off of a book called Beyond Star Trek. It's about mm-hmm. a lot of that. And he yeah, talked about the transporters and the concept of even if we doubled our technology every two years between now and when Star Trek is supposed to happen, it wouldn't. we wouldn't have storage big enough to store a human body. It would be bigger than the mm-hmm. Enterprise itself. Yeah. Well, yeah so then following yeah. that... Yeah. So then if we doubled every year, how when theoretically could we have transporters when we had enough storage capacity for that? <laughs> we'll all be dead. Like well, thousands <laughs> of years? We dust. <laughs> so I did find a thing that um in Japan they actually just broke the world order for internet speed, getting three hundred and nineteen terabits per second, Whoa. which is 7.6 million times faster than the average home internet speed. They had wow. to actually evolve their own tech for carrying it as far as like the cabling is concerned. Um, and that's always been the like the slow part of it, right? Is is the technology catching up to what our actual needs in mm. the system are. So like that yeah. material shortcoming still is is what's going to what's going to slow it down but well, that, yeah, I mean, that was impressive can't travel nearly that fast like yeah. <laughs> yeah and moore's law is what you were talking about that was that was the name of the that's law that's the law yeah. yes yeah. but it's um but that's also like a uh, that doesn't factor in leaps in technology like that's like a bare minimum that we'd mm-hmm. be able to track at right and so you can still have huge technological leaps that we can discover that could enable faster growth so if I'm we discovered to stay some optimistic about Star Trek, <laughs> well, that's, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> so, but like if we discovered some other way to compute or to store or some a material that did it a lot better, then that would change. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. Cool. Can All I right. Ask one? Can I ask one? Of, yeah, so, of course. No, 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 no Phil, Phil, you don't get to do any questions. <laughs> to watch. We, we brought this up just, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago. We just watched the episode Timescapes. Um, from season six where um, Jordy, Troy, Picard and Jordy, data. Troy, Picard and data uh, were at a symposium or something. And while they were gone, Riker and the enterprise gets called to a Romulan ship. that's having an emergency. Oh, and yes. as they're doing this, they hit pockets of space time that have been altered. So things are speeding up and slowing down. And when they get there, they go to the Romulan ship and they're trying to figure out, cause it looks like they've been in battle, but it's actually a power transfer. And Deanna casually throws out there, oh, yeah, Romulan ships use an artificial quantum singularity as their power source, which is basically like an artificial black hole. Yeah. What? (laughs) What What and how? I mean, is is it possible to harness that kind of energy? No, no more, I would say, impossible. And forgive me, Tamara, do you mind? No, okay, go. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I would say no more impossible than creating a warp bubble because what you're trying to do is you're artificially warping space time to some extent. Now, whether that's creating a singularity in front of you or whether that's wrapping space time around your ship, 
you're still requiring a ton of energy to be able to do that. And this question actually came up for us when we were doing season three of Discovery, which was like, well, why didn't the Romulan ships get affected by the burn? Because they use oh. the artificial singularities and right. we don't not know if they use dilithium or not. And actually, I mean, my argument is, is like, the thing is, is that dilithium um, is used in warp drives to be a regulator for matter-antimatter processes, which is what's generating the energy, which then forms the warp bubble. And so there's nothing to say that like that same process can't be what generates that artificial singularity, because all you're trying mm. to do is get enough energy to warp space-time to create whatever engine mechanism you have. And... Um, the, the artificial singularity, the way I think about it is it's like a carrot in the stick situation. You're almost dangling a warp, like a black hole in front of your ship and, and you're always falling into it. That's I feel like way, a kid in class. What... I'm like raising my hand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so once they, once they have enough power then to generate the singularity, it does it, is it almost like it just continuously runs then once it's triggered? Self-sustaining. Yeah, I would I would say that you at least need to be able to keep it. You need to keep it moving through space in the same way you need to keep your warp bubble moving through space. And that's the function of the nacelles. So the nacelles, um, they don't require the dilithium in the same process. And so a Romulan engine is still going to need to move that carrot in front of the ship so it can keep falling into okay, it. Okay, and then this leads on to a follow-up question, probably for Tamara. Why do they design Federation starships with the nacelles out for the majority for the majority of ships on a really thin <laughs> post really far away from the ship? I was, where it I was seems gonna like ask... structural integrity would just be mm, I don't know. I was gonna yeah, ask, I know there's no air resistance, but you still have the concept that something at rest wants to stay at rest and something moving wants to stay moving. And it seems like that would put so many unnecessary stress points on the hull in so many places. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot that goes into design. And I just got this really this really great book from Jeff that I haven't fully you get that? read it. Star Trek, <laughs> the next generation technical manual. Everybody pull yours and out I'm, if you have mine's them. over there. Yep. <laughs> well, it's I'm, funny because I gave it to her okay. and she's like are you sure? And I go, yeah, I have six of them. You can have one. It's fine. <laughs> he, he collects them like baseball cards. Yeah. I'm really hoping it's going to shine some light into what they, they were thinking with regards <laughs> no. to their structural design. Like maybe they have special materials. Because <laughs> the answer I is they that just cool. <laughs> it's incredibly dense. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I, I have the original series ones too, if really you want one. Being like, oh my God. Oh, <laughs> I mean, like, there's, I'm open straight up to exterior connect hard points. So it's talking about the external parts of the ship that they can tie out to. So I'm just, they, they've got sections. I just, just got this two days ago, so I haven't read it yet. <laughs> and, and just for reference, this amazing Star Trek technical manual came out in 1991. Yeah. Yes. So, and it's, it's cool. by Rick Sternbach and Michael Akuda. Yeah. I love the Okudas. It's, it's so like funny. my go-to for techno babble for ship engineering. <laughs> <laughs> and and just the drawings and art in that book are crazy. Incredible. The schematics and everything they include in that, it's it's really good. Well, that's why I was so excited to find they released that blueprints of the Enterprise D, and it's like full scale, like a dozen official blueprints for the ship, and like they're just gorgeous. They're I love huge. it. Huge, they're amazing. Yeah. It was like five bucks at like a secondhand store. It was the best thing ever. 
Um, but I would say from a, from a normal engineering standpoint, if you're going to put something really far away on a long stick away from the crew, then there's probably a scientific like hazmat reasoning yeah. for that. <laughs> or keep these, keep these things the hell away from us. But the warp core isn't in the nacelles, right? The warp warp core is like dead center in the structure. It's not in the nacelles, It runs through the ship, yeah. Yeah. It's like 100 feet long. Nacelles have all the EPS conduits are mostly in there, the electroplasma system conduits. And Mm. because wasn't that was an episode of the Enterprise, right? Where they all got like trapped in the nacelles and it was like super dangerous. We're not there yet. Oh, sorry. (laughs) They've seen everything. I, I don't know. If it's yeah. past season six of TNG, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> right. Normally, anytime like I have to move something old. out. <laughs> well, then, yeah. but then, so, well, I guess, like, with the Borg, they don't ever explain how the Borg move through space. They're just a giant cube, and they just, but it's, it's never really explained, right? That's space magic. They're just so far ahead. <laughs> Transwarp conduits. Use the force. They <laughs> no, disappear. Trans- Transwarp conduits are a great example. They're basically artificial wormholes that the, um, if uh, if any Mass Effect fans out there, it's like um, the not they're the secondary mass relays is essentially what transwarp conduits are. It's that you're able to create artificial point to point wormholes. Yeah, and to be able to navigate. It's also yeah. the things in Galaxy Quest that they goo them up and shoot them into to make them go to Earth and back to the other place. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> it works for everything. It works for everything because we don't know how they work hardly at all. So they work for everything. It's kind of yeah. like in the 60s when Marvel used radiation and, and nuclear radiation for everything to create the Hulk from who knows what because we didn't know how it worked. So you can make it make anything. <laughs> but I really like Tamara's point about the reason the nacelles would be far away, that there has to be like a health and safety hazard reason for that. That's a very yep. engineering yeah, it's and, like, and, in, and in yeah. that episode of Enterprise, that's why there's like a ion storm or something coming. So they hide out inside the nacelles because they're so protected. That's it. It's, it's yeah, the only safe cool. spot for them to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, okay. they stayed there. For, they stayed there for like a week, something like that. Yeah, it's a Seven, good episode. Days. Yeah, it was a yeah. good episode. Good bottle episode. Yeah, definitely a bottle episode. <laughs> um, let's uh, let me ask. Oh, actually, well, so kind of speaking of warp and dilithium crystals and all that, so they use uh, ant, uh, matter and antimatter. Um, I think of the there's a TOS episode where they go into the antimatter universe, just like an alternate universe. So I think if so, and basically they kind of establish that matter cannot touch antimatter because it explodes. So how do they contain antimatter inside of a warp core? Like, is there a material that holds it? or But that's matter. Very carefully. Vibranium. <laughs> it's like living answer. It works well and very carefully. It does it well. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, that is the future. Like, that is the science fiction part of that is because antimatter. And this is the thing maybe people don't realize. is like antimatter isn't fictional. Like, antimatter mm-hmm. is a thing. We do have antimatter. The thing is, is it's just very short lived and that's just something we haven't figured out because like you said, it interacts with normal matter and then annihilates itself. And so that is something that we can kind of hand wave and just be like, we solved it in the future. We can make stable antimatter. But but <laughs> even then, a lot of the warp core accidents that happen is because of a breach in the antimatter yes, containment, containment unit, right? Like yeah. we've heard that phrasing. <laughs> I'm starting to, yeah. to, to realize that 
it's actually like a very like it's a constant stress probably for Jordy or for every engineer of just like balance of the antimatter and making sure that everything's within safety limits and doesn't overheat. Like that's a lot of work. Yeah. Antimatter containment is like job number one. Always coolant. They always lose coolant. Yeah. Coolant yeah. pressure. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Well, and that's well, actually in that same episode, Timescape, because um, time isn't standing still. It's just moving very slowly because Data recognizes that the the warp core explosion, since it travels faster than humans do, that's how they know that, that it's actually time is moving a lot slower. It's not stopped. So, so mm-hmm. at, any, at no point in Star Trek do they kind of try and explain how you contain an anti-matter, anti-matter explosion it's not some kind of energy field or force field that they're using to not necessarily like using energy to contain the matter instead of touching it or Uh anything like that even though i know it's way off and technically possibly not even possible but (laughs) for the reactions themselves that's really the function of dilithium that that's what the dilithium does it's like control rods in a nuclear yeah Yeah. it's it's like control rods in nuclear fusion that you you stabilize Uh, the reactions using dilithium and so when your dilithium goes then you get a cascade reaction of matter and antimatter and that's not good not good (laughs) so dilithium is kind of their vibranium from the marvel universe we just create something that has properties that we can make it do whatever we want and then that ties in okay (laughs) it does its thing i mean that's like you said the science fiction part of it but that's as close to science as you can get with science fiction so yeah you give it properties and then you work within that realm okay we we go fast i did create a lot of very heavy background science for dilithium cannon for the burn (laughs) that we do not need to get into because it's gonna be (laughs) real intense (laughs) wait for our next special nerd presents the burn yeah. yeah, that's going to be a good episode. When we get to Disco, that's the time we'll have Dr. Aaron go into the... explain the burn. Yeah, and, what yeah. The, yeah. and the thoughts behind it. Yeah. yeah. I have another question. Okay. Unless anyone else does. Go. So when we were doing TOS, they talked about the fact that the people who created the show didn't understand inertia because they didn't create the inertial dampers until after they realized that going to warp and accelerating so quickly would turn you into jelly. But the concept behind that with the G-forces and everything in my mind would imagine that you have to push an equal amount on the opposite side of the object to dampen the effect. But when you're going that far forward, you're being pushed on so hard that if you just smash it from the other side, wouldn't you just create jelly anyways? Like, how do the inertia dampers work? Very well. (laughs) And they do a good job. I've thought about these as well. It's a stretch because we've seen the technical manuals and we don't necessarily see this. But has anyone encountered um, Ublek or like the corn uh-huh. starch and water non-Newtonian yep. fluids? Oh, yeah, I, I use it with kids a lot. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So, do you want to do you want to give a primer on on that, like how it works? Yeah. So Ublek is is a really intriguing fluid that like if you put your hands down into like soil, you can like you can like go fine but if you like poke it hard or you punch it or you step on it it becomes like a solid so like i the reason i first interfaced with it was someone wanted to do a demo where they dropped an oobleck balloon on someone's head and i'm like hmm not what you want to not what you <laughs> oh, yeah, want to do that pressure causes it really to solidify bad. immediately doesn't um, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we then I had a, a, a science museum that wanted to do uh, a running pool with it, but like full depth. And I'm like, okay, if they go in, they don't come out. So like kiddie pool, micro scale, maybe, but like, no, you can't have little liability alone. So 
Um, <laughs> it's just a really cool fluid that depending on the, the speed and force that you use to actually contact it is going to either be liquid or solid. So, so more scientific words, it's like non-Newtonian fluids and stuff, but like you might be able to cover that better than me. No, <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's solidify, right? Like that's yeah. essentially what it is. And so yeah. that's like the general principle I've thought of, of the inertial dampeners is like to imagine that you have some sort of fluid that behaves in a sort of similar way. That's like cushioning the inside of the ship that it's almost like between the outer hull area and the interior that you have one that reacts like a seatbelt almost, that it kind of like, cushions you to quick changes, but only yeah. to a limit in the sense you still get tossed around when the inertial dampeners can't keep up. They had that in <laughs> Demolition Man, didn't they? When she crashes the car and the foam comes out and then it turns to styrofoam right away. They should just have that on the Enterprise. Every time they go to warp, it just... <laughs> I'm pretty sure Flubber <laughs> worked that exact same way. <laughs> Super good. It kind of does. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, I'm sorry, this is random, uh, The Expanse. I think season yes. three yes. or four, it's when they go oh. into the ring for the first time that one guy goes in like super fast and he dies and explodes. But then they go, hey, if we just go in slower, it's fine. So is it? I, I know this is very different, but is that kind of a similar thing? If, if you go in with too much force and pressure, then it's it's it changes shape or science stuff. It pushes yeah. back. Yes, well, let's go with that. Yeah, because the 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 thing. Sorry, this I'm not going to turn this into a science of the expanse episode, but um, that is one of my favorite examples of inertia ever because it's the most horrifying <laughs> worst oh, yeah. case scenario example. He dies a horrible death. Possibly. It's a horrible, squishy death. <laughs> um, but the reason for that was that the laws of physics changed as soon as they got into the rings. And so, mm. but that sudden change, that's exactly it. It's almost like going, hitting the water, right? Like when you fire, as they've done before, like I remember on Mythbusters, they fired bullets into water, right? And mm -hmm. that changes suddenly that it's like, if you imagine a person inside that bullet, <laughs> they've they would want to keep going. And that's exactly what happens to the guy in the expanse. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, okay. My turn. Um, so there's, um, there's an episode of TNG. It's called, called evolution, uh, season three, episode one. It's the one where Wesley releases nanobites or nanites into the ship nanites. while they're setting like a star. Um, and that professor wants to launch his, his, his egg to study this, um, thing. And he's studying There's two stars that are going to collide. Yeah. It's a neutron star pulling in energy from a red giant until it explodes. And this happens every 196 years. Uh, my question is, is that possible when this, if the star explodes, doesn't it go away or like, how is this a repeating thing? No, so that, that that's actually based on some astrophysical phenomenon that we see, and they stretched the words a little bit, and we saw the same thing in Prodigy in episode three of season one, the binary red giant white dwarf system. Mm. It gives off what we call X-ray flares, and essentially what's going on is you have a two stars that were born around the same time but had different mass profiles, and so the one that would turn into which is more commonly seen as a white dwarf, much less common. I, I don't know if there's an example, but there could be, is if it's a neutron star. But a neutron star or a white dwarf is just a dead star. It's a star that's run out its life. It's ran out of fuel. White dwarfs are the less impressive versions where the outer shells just kind of fizz off. Um, neutron stars are when they do supernova and either become a neutron star or a black hole. But then 
the thing is, is that that other star that they are paired with, um, if it's not as massive, it's still going to be in its later phases of life, which is the red giant phase where it's continuing to expand. And what happens is, is the high density of the dead star starts to strip off outer layers of the red giant. And it reaches like a point where it flares. It like gets so much mass that it accretes that it shoots off really like a bright high energy X-ray flare. And Mm. then that life cycle continues and it actually becomes like a really periodic thing that we see. Again, something we continue to study. We understand some aspects of it. That's a very glossed over for all of the star experts <laughs> in the audience who are like, well, actually, the details of this. Like, <laughs> yeah, going through the life cycle yeah. of a star <laughs> is already in dense. But, um, yeah. in principle, that's sort of the theory behind it. And so, yeah, that's like absolutely something that we've seen and uh, and continue to study. Really cool. Really, okay. really cool. Yeah, and let me let me. I should have probably said this at the beginning. We, this is not very in depth. We're getting very kind of because I I don't know <laughs> okay. if I if I could comprehend that. Oh. Um, but so don't get mad at us if it's not the full answer, <laughs> please. We're trying to cover a lot here. So, <laughs> listeners, be be kind, please. Thank you. <laughs> be kind. Be kind. Um, but yeah, but that's that's the general principle behind that. Okay, interesting. Good to know. Um. I've read a couple other books. I think I sent one to Tamara, but there's I, I've read one by I think like Brian Greene because I always remember like episodes of Nova because he he does Nova, and I'm a I watch that kind of shit. Um, or I, think I watch I sent, that kind of shit too. I love Nova. Sorry, um, I, work for, I work for PBS, so <laughs> we watch all, we watch all that shit. Awesome. <laughs> Nova. Um, and then I think I sent or Tamara did I send you a book about light and like how we've studied light? Yeah over time and like how yeah. like with time travel and kind of like how our discoveries of light over other centuries. And, but that's f- fascinating too. Um, yeah, so- that one's really cool. There's actually like a moment in that, that talks about how there's potential that there's imprinting happening. Like if time wasn't a constant that there could, that there could actually be relics in that. Uh, I think it's in Death Valley here that people have been known to like report seeing a train going through in a place that there's never been tracks. But yeah. the thought is that it's an imprinted like thing. And so brought that up at a science oh. thing and got got behooed really fast. But oh, really? I was like, I'm just it was an I thought it was an interesting take on the thing. Okay. <laughs> but it was neat. I thought that it's book all theoretical, is, right? Is really cool. Yeah, it's all theoretical. So yeah. Well, let so speaking of light and possible time travel. Again, I know David's itching to ask a time travel question. I'm saving. I'm saving my time travel question for the end. I think that'll be our. Uh, Do we have enough time at the end it, for time it travel? It will. It will be. It will be quick enough for general enough that it's not going to take forever. Sure. <laughs> Sure mm-hmm. it will. We could, we could do a he's whole actually, other science episode on time travel. Trust me. He's been going back and forth. We just don't know it. He's rewound this moment hundreds of times to get the exact <laughs> moment he should ask the question. He's already asked it. He knows when he's going to do it. Figures. Um, okay. Well, let me ask this one then. If there's artificial gravity on the Enterprise, in which way do the toilets swirl when they flush? They're Australian toilets. <laughs> Backwards. Ah. Assuming that they use water. I'm guessing that they do. Mm. Let's know they use like well, energy I mean, in their showers, right? I mean, sonic showers, sonic toilets. <laughs> I was gonna say like when, when you're looking at capsules and stuff, a lot of that is not it's not done where you're actually flushing something. It's a bad collection Vacuum. standpoint. Yeah, yeah so. Mm. But, but they don't but, have gravity on those, so. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Then it feeds it, back. Then it feeds back to the replicator and. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's all. It's all. closed system. Yeah. What's that that line that the Admiral gives in Disco this season where he's like, basically, they they just recycle their shit. Like, they're eating their shit. Yeah. Yeah. And that is fertilizer is fertilizer. I like that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's like uh, in the movie The Martian. Yeah. That's that's how he gets uh, plants and stuff to grow in Martian soils because he's got shit to all the microbes and stuff jumpstart the soil. A lot of nutrients. It is. (laughs) Um, what is the speed of warp? I'm curious about that. Oh, Jesus. Isn't normal, normal, normal warp speed is supposed to be like, like what they go at all the time is supposed to be light speed. Right. And then like each thing is a multiplier by light speed or something as they go. But it's, but it's like an exponential scale. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's almost like comparing apples and oranges, isn't it? Because warp, you're essentially bending space around the ship instead of traveling at light speed. Yeah, so yeah, the the <laughs> general conceit of warp drive is that when you have mass in space time, um, you're limited. It's a bowling ball on the trampoline, right? That's like limited to how much it can dri- <laughs> you can go. And um, for those of you who heard me almost say drink there, that's because <laughs> I was going to say a, it's become a drinking game at my talks when I say a bowling ball on a trampoline because <laughs> I say it so often. <laughs> but it's, but it slows it that's limits example, to like how fast you can move through yeah which is why i don't stop saying it um through the fabric of space time the less mass you have the less it dips down and then once you reach no mass you just coast in a straight line at the speed of light but nothing in those laws of physics say that space time itself can't go faster than the speed of light and so warp one or warp zero um kind mm-hmm. of as tamara said that's where you're just counteracting the mass of your own ship and you're able mm-hmm. to coast at the speed of light mm-hmm. Then you build another bubble around that. That could be considered a warp factor one. You could build another bubble around that. That's warp factor two. But you can picture, like, as you're doing that, you're exponentially increasing your speed, right? Because you're building bubble upon bubble. And then eventually you reach such a speed that you wrap all of space and time around your ship, which is warp factor 10 in some series. Which... In some series, some series, which you turn into lizards. I love the qualifiers. The way, but to, like I know, I freaking love Threshold. Like I, I have this I just weird saw relationship your, with Threshold. Yeah. Your action <laughs> yeah. figure, I love that. I know someone got that for me as a present because it's like Threshold is such a part of my life because everyone asks about Warp Factor Ten, but um. And salamander babies. That's like the way they talk about it in Threshold up until the salamander <laughs> thing happens <laughs> is really good. It's they they talk about that limit being because it's all of space and time now that's wrapped around your ship. So now you've lost sense of time, you've lost sense of distance, like you can't really control that. And I you know, we've had other series talk about like higher warp factors. Like the original series had higher like warp 32 or whatever. But yeah. the way I kind of think about it, I don't really assign speeds to them because I think in my mind, it depends on the mass of the ship itself. Oh. Like you can build the warp factor one or warp factor two, but you're counteracting the specific mass. And like, as we know, Voyager is like much smaller than Enterprise D, right? Yeah. And so their warp factors are just inherently going to be different because they have different masses in space time. So so they don't. So in a warp nine for Voyager is different than a warp nine for the Enterprise D because it's because of its, its mass and size. 
That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Then I wonder, because like some of those ships only, they often say like, oh, that, that ship has a maximum warp of like warp four. Is that because either of a mass problem or just they don't have the energy to go past that? could be structural materials too oh, right like you okay. have a max speed that you can reach in different like vessels of travel and it's all based on when the materials are going to start breaking apart yeah you have like so, the concord you know. versus like a 737 yeah exactly yeah. Or, or submersibles how deep they can go depending on how much their structure yeah. can hold against exactly the submarines versus yeah like huh. in star trek 6 when the excelsior is going and they're like she's breaking apart and he's like break her apart then yeah <laughs> kind of yeah okay well, so hmm. piggybacking onto that, like the concept that you have that inside of the Earth's atmosphere because you have air hitting the structure and wanting to break it apart. Why would a ship not be able to go at a certain speed? Once it hits that speed, isn't there nothing preventing it from continuing to go forward and it would essentially coast? Why would it need continuous energy to keep moving? If it's going at warp, then it needs to sustain the warp bubble. And that's the function of the nacelles. It's like, it's not that you've reached oh. like a maximum speed that you're continuing to go at. It's that you need to make sure that that warp bubble stays stable around your ship and is able to propel you. Cause that's the whole thing is like your own warp engine builds the bubble. Then the nacelles like basically move that bubble through space time and they need to keep it stable and they need to keep it moving. And that's what, they have to stay functioning for. So like if you were traveling through water, it's churning up water behind you so that the wave pushes you forward and you have mm -hmm. to keep that behind you. So whatever's churning up that water behind you has to keep going. That makes sense. Okay. That makes, so I'm almost 40 years old. I've been watching Star Trek for a really long time and it, that just clicked that I go, Oh yeah, there's not a propulsion system. It's a bubble and they're bending space time. And I'm like, I feel like an yeah. idiot now, but that makes so Be much sense. Bever Beverly almost wrecked the whole damn world. <laughs> well, yeah. being trapped I, inside I a warp Wesley, bubble. I guess Wesley did because it was it his was Wesley. jacked up warp bubble. So. Stupid Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that makes so much sense. That there's not a propulsion like how we think a car has going 60 miles an hour. It's they're bending the mass and the gravity and the warp oh, or the field around it then to push it. So that's why it has to keep going to maintain. Yeah, you're the not bubble. propelling it. You're not propelling it through matter the way that we would mm -hmm. imagine. Oh. do it's literally bending the space around it instead which is why it would take so much energy which is why you need like an anti -ant or matter antimatter explosion because you're bending yeah. space time. Because yeah you need so much so power much. to do it yeah. yeah just a lot yeah wow that makes sense yeah. all right a good a good analogy to think about how much energy you're requiring with that is um when they first started to try to think of calculating how much energy it would take to even just counteract the mass of a starship the first calculation they did was all of the energy everywhere existed. <laughs> give, give me all the energies please it was like a number so big that like no amount in our entire universe because the whole thing is it's e equals mc squared right energy mm -hmm. equals mass times the speed of light squared like a, a mass holds energy within it and so if you don't have mass to bend space time you can use an equivalent amount of energy but it's always important, too, to remember that the hydrogen bomb was a teaspoon of matter converted to energy. And so when mm. we're talking about things like and now they got that calculation down to about the semi truck level of mass that you convert to energy that could propel a starship. That's still very dangerous. And I like to joke, that's why Zephram Cochran drinks. <laughs> There's no yeah. way I'm strapping myself to that thing. <laughs> he knew. He knows yeah. what's up. That's interesting. Okay. Sorry, that was kind of an aside, but 
right, are we entering, no. ready to enter the home stretch with time travel? I, I feel uh, like we're there. Is there anything take, else you guys want to ask? Yeah, our, either Dr. Aaron or our, our Tamara, if there's any questions you guys have of just in general for, for each, each other. other. Yeah. Or, I was going to say, they're I, the I answering answer questions. I hope they're like, like, really like, cool. But I mean, like, if, <laughs> if you've thought of something while we've been talking. Well, so. I'm just going to take advantage of the fact that I'm uh, with Tamara here. Like, I'm curious to kind of hear your your perspective or like, what's your favorite example of engineering in Star Trek um, from an engineer's perspective? Oh, gosh. So there's there's so many that we've seen come to fruition, right? Like everything that has to do with communications just in general from it has been incredible. Like, but I think for me, what I would really love to see is like the handheld ability to be like, this is what's wrong with you. And now you're fixed. Like just, and you know, we see, we see this whole problem right now with like, you know, not nitrogen on a soup box, but like how long it takes to get diagnosed. Right. Cause it's, 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 it's a guess and check whether we like it or not. Doctors are scientists. It's critical thinking. <laughs> you take the data you have. And so being able to instead have the ability to have like the entire like universes diagnostic systems in your fingertips at any given moment and no matter who you're in front of be able to be like this is what's wrong with them this is how to fix it and now they're good um because i feel like like obviously i wanted the holodeck to happen and i feel like we're getting there with <laughs> vr and ar and yeah, stuff totally. but like i think from a medical standpoint that's still the holy grail that i'm hoping someone somewhere is is making happen do you think that like necessity is driving that invention of having like a super contagious disease that people want to be as like touch free as possible right because yeah i mean so so i'm a chemical and biomolecular engineer infectious disease is my specialty um i do think that it's going to be really useful in that effect uh but having been in the vaccines and medical world for a really long time i've also seen really incredible innovations that just suddenly disappear um and like it or not medicine is a business and i feel like mm. uh the altruism of what that could be it needs to be marketed correctly in order for it to happen and so and as long as development costs are high and medical costs keep bringing in money don't i don't know that it's gonna happen i think even i mean right now we had the necessity for touchless right like and we mm -hmm. saw in infectious suites we do have really great um we we have lighting systems that we utilize so that you're not actually spraying components to clean uh but those didn't become widespread use until COVID happened you know so it finally moved beyond the government structure and medical structure to everyday households and so i'm mm -hmm. hoping we see more and more of that uh that marketability based on like the home consumer wanting it as well. So necessity I, is the mother of all invention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, cause you would hope that remoteness, you know, right now there's a need for this because of just, I mean, I do engineers without borders. We're in remote villages all the time that could really benefit from something like this, but that's not enough. Cause there's not money in those places. Like it, it takes something as big as what we all just went through affecting everyone that has no monetary like barrier of entry doesn't care how rich you are or how poor you are it's going to get you like i think it's going to take something of that caliber to move the right pockets mm. sadly it just makes sense i mean yeah. we've made our biggest technological advances during war times usually because there's a necessity mm -hmm. and this was essentially a war on disease war on germs mm -hmm. yep so that was when 
I mean, hell, you can see it in Zoom stock. <laughs> it went through the roof because <laughs> everybody was like, I need to talk to people without being in front of them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we had a we had a lot of the technology that ended up getting mobilized quickly for a while before and the red tape all disappeared and all the barriers century got out of the way when it was needed because it was affecting everyone, including the people with money. So it's just sadly part of the world yeah. right now. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, let me ask you a couple questions and then we'll go to David's time travel because that will take a while. Um, but so. <laughs> For both of you, and I, I know Tamara just kind of, kind of answered one. But what's a, what's something in Star Trek that you, that you want to see, but then what's something that you think is actually achievable in our lifetimes? And so I'm interested to see what you have to say about, like, which one you would <laughs> actually want to see, or which one you're most excited yeah. about existing. <laughs> I do. I mean, I do think like, oh, so when it comes to warp drive, like, we can't predict when that's going to happen, mm-hmm. but. I will say like we're on the right track in just in the sense of like we had the theory of space time. Then we had the indirect effects of space time, like gravitational lensing and all of those things. Now with LIGO, we have directly detected the motion of space time itself. And so the next step is to learn how to play with it. But in order to learn how to play with it, we need huge advances in energy. And so like, that's a barrier right now, but that's like an unpredictable barrier. So it could happen. Mm. It could not happen. It could just be a huge breakthrough that allows us to be able to do that. Um, I That I would love, love to see. For me, I mean, Tamara mentioned it earlier. I freaking holodex, man. Like, I get Barkley. <laughs> right? I'd be obsessed. Like, yeah. I yeah. have VR. <laughs> I did the, like, the immersive reality that they had at downtown Disney with like the star Wars thing oh, where you yeah. could actually like, oh, walk mm-hmm. through. It there, was a, a freaking holodeck. I know That's I've crazy. never, yeah, cool. I, it, it's a holodeck. Like I, I picked up a blaster rifle and I got hit with blasts and I felt the heat of like Mustafar and like, <laughs> it was freaking awesome. And wow. so the closest I can get to a holodeck, like that's just, that's my jam. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I'd be, I'd a thousand percent be Janeway concocting all sort of like <laughs> Gothic romance novels and Irish villages. And like, the wife. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. yeah it's so good. Um, yeah. Right on. I love that. Tamara, what's what's something that you think do you think that the tricorders are achievable or what do you think we might see in the near future? Um, I think that the tricorder should be achievable. I mean, we we are definitely now able to not only collect the data in mass, but also analyze it in mass. Cause like that's been really the, one of the biggest limitations is, is being able to like real time analyze large sets of data and data analytics is just becoming something that's getting faster and faster as we go. Uh, and so as that becomes more real time, I think that that could definitely be something again with the right backing that mm-hmm. is possible. Um, I love this warp speed thing. And I, I, I do wonder, like, are again, are we looking at materials with it? Are you know, are we are we starting to like look at like when we're looking at maglev trains and bullet trains and hyperloops, are we starting to push beyond where we're already comfortable with materials to get even faster and faster for that? Hmm. Um but I'm trying to think like man, the holodecks are just so good. The holodeck. Mm. Yeah. They really are. <laughs> so hard to be the holodeck. They really are. As long as you're not part of the cleanup crew. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Mariner. Worst job in Starfleet. It is. Oh, God, I love that that joke made it into Lower Decks. It's like, we've yes. been joking about that as nerds for, for years. years. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah, I think I think those would, those would be good ones. Those would be good ones. Those would be okay, those are good. <laughs> All right, David, go for it's it. Time? Is go it time? F- it's time for time. Tiny um, whiny right. stuff. So I'm definitely an amateur, but I'm a big fan of time travel, time travel movies, time travel concepts, and so on. And I understand that time travel is not something that we can ever really understand until somebody actually was to do it. And that's, of course, assuming that time is a construct and a physical thing that you can actually manipulate and so on and so forth. So jumping past all that where mm-hmm. most of the normal people's heads have already popped, it feels like <laughs> the, the concepts of time travel break down into essentially three theories where you have one kind of the multiverse theory where if you were to go back and change something, you'd create a new branch and that creates infinite branches. That's what we see in the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. Or you have one that we see and we see all these in Star Trek almost at different points. Um you have the ones where you go back and you change something and no matter what you change, something will correct it to make it bring back to normal. So you can't really change time. Or you have the ones where if you go back and change it and you create a time paradox, you expose the entire universe and everything is essentially stops (laughs) existing. Since you guys are much smarter than I am, which of these theories do you subscribe to and think is most likely and why? (laughs) So I'm going to throw a fourth and I don't know if you guys have seen the Adam project. Um, but yeah. they so in that he actually utilizes the black hole motion to be able to get through time. Um, and what they set up in that one was you could affect everything there, but it wouldn't affect you. Like you are that singular person in that moment until like it com- like the other person now would have a different thing, but like you still are that person from that moment forward. So it was a very like- intriguing change almost like it takes time to solidify in a way yeah like it takes time to actually like match up and go back and so like the hope in it was that if you then try and travel back you would then regain all the new memories that would have formed based on the things that you had changed Uh, but you also could pop back and just be gone because they used they used that theory in legends of tomorrow as well the tv show which i always assumed was just them making up stuff because that doesn't seem to have any scientific (laughs) basis in anything on that show it's just it's just good fun but that's kind of their concept of like it takes time to concrete solidify before the changes are enacted and then they ripple throughout time. Uh, is that is that the one you subscribe to is the most possibly or most likely? I feel like it's got I mean, there's cause and effect to everything. Right. So like if you move if you move something in the past, it's going to have that ripple. And I don't know if it's as, as extreme as the splits that we see with Doctor Strange or if it is just this like minor ripple that you hope doesn't lead to like you popping back and not actually being existent anymore but <laughs> i do i do think that there's a definite effect to it like i don't i don't think it just goes away hmm. yeah. i think yeah i think for me i subscribe probably more to the you go back in time and that action has created a new universe and and there's a Multiverse there's a mass yeah, there's a mass energy like issue, <laughs> conservation <laughs> issue with that of like where do you get all of the matter and the energy for that new universe? But I think just logically, that makes the most sense to me because it's like the quantum multiverse, as you said, concept where 
every decision you make spawns a new universe. It's the Schrodinger's cat, right? That Mm -hmm. in one universe, I go into plug in a USB stick and I get it right. (laughs) And there's another (laughs) universe. universe. (laughs) Not on the first try. Yeah, yeah. And, And so every decision you make spawns a new universe, which again, conservation nonsense, like that, that breaks all laws of conservation that we understand. But when it comes to time travel, time travel, in itself breaks all of our understanding of how our universe functions. Cause you, you mentioned too, when you were describing it, that like time is, if you don't think of time as being like tangible and controllable, I, I do think time is tangible. It's just not controllable. Our, mm. our fabric of space time, we can see changes to that. Um, gravitational time dilation is an effect that we do see GPS mm-hmm. satellites experience the um interstellar effect from the Mm. from the film of like gps satellites experience time faster than we do here on earth and we account for Mm -hmm. that and um and so iss too it's slower for them right and it's not in a way that you can directly measure like you can directly measure but you can't notice it because it's fractions of nanoseconds it's like nanoseconds right well yeah that was was the whole concept behind behind Einstein's uh, theories behind the possibility of traveling through time, right, was the fact that time and space have to be linked because if you apply enough gravitational force to space, you can dilate time, which means you can affect time by affecting space, which means they're tied together. I never thought about the conservation thing, though, because in theory, if you're going back in time, you're creating a new universe, and conservation is the idea that in our universe, there's only so much matter and energy, but what happens when you have a split obviously it wouldn't you almost have two 100 percent sets of right. time and of of space and energy so yeah that, or, that breaks everything we know <laughs> yeah or another way to think about it that doesn't break conservation but it really hurts our brain for thinking of how our universes interact is is kind of how they do it in marvel but they did it the most i think in fringe where it's talking about mm. like different bubble universes that touch each other that you mm. have like these skins that touch each other so in one universe, I've made one decision, but that universe already existed. And in another universe, I've made a decision, but that universe also already exists. So I'm not spawning new universes every time I make a decision. Those universes already exist. So it's like a path you're just following. With so your there's multiples decision. of you already? Yeah, yeah. And, Interesting. Um, and you have Jet Li's the doesn't... one where he kills all of his other universe people and condenses them all into one, and he's super right. powerful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like that doesn't answer time travel either, though. That's the problem. No. Like, time travel doesn't doesn't factor into oh, that. And when you look at yeah. if you look at time mathematically, if you look at the fabric of space time, the the coefficients in front of space are manipulatable. Like you can mess with them, but mm. you can't. The coefficient in front of time is the speed of light. It's a fixed mm. constant. And so mm. that's why, like, mathematically, mm. we can't time travel because we just don't have control over how time progresses. And mm. um, okay. and if we broke that, that just breaks a lot of things in a beautiful way. But that's mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> is, is that <laughs> why they often will do the slingshot around the sun because they're pulling in the gravitation from that to that's help affect how, time, maybe? I like oh, no, that's because it's BS. It. <laughs> 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 no, 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 no. I really like, I mean, this is so much, like, when I try to apply any science to the gravitational time travel slingshot, it's because they are going into the gravity well, which is dilating time. Mm-hmm. And then they build a warp bubble. So like that compounds on top of the time dilation, but like going back in time and then figuring out how you go to the same spot 
forward in time is hot. Well, come on, Doctor. And everybody knows if you do the slingshot (laughs) forward, you go forward in time. And if you do it backwards, (laughs) you go backwards in time. TOS movies taught us that. You just reverse it. I thought you had to go. I thought you had to, like, drive down the street at 88 miles an hour before you hit the clock tower. And then you were good to go. What the hell? And really, we're just the, the easiest answer is just to anger all of the temporal agents and just say it was a predestination paradox and we were meant to go back in time and everything stays the same. And we it's had fine. to. Sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think I honestly just contribute to the theory that we're never going to be able to travel through time because none of this it breaks the concept of everything we know about physics. Mm. We just it don't know just, enough about well, space and time and their relation to each other. Well, not even that. I just that it. There's no way in which it logically combines into something that we can understand with our concept of physics. I don't think time travel will ever be a thing that we can accomplish, ever. Mm. Well, do you think that that's why maybe tachyons are used in the the manipulation of time? Like, I know there's that Prodigy episode where they're all experiencing time at different speeds, where it's not necessarily time travel. We're just experiencing it differently. Yeah, and tach because they hit a tachyon storm with that. The tachyons are again like antimatter. That's an actual thing. It's a real thing. Unlike right antimatter, it's we've never seen it. It's theoretical. Mm. But tachyons are essentially instead of the bowling ball and the trampoline, it's like the inverse of that. Sorry, drink. It, it seems to me like it's it's the same as the black holes. We don't understand them, so we use them for whatever we want. Same thing as radiation back in the 60s and 70s. We, like you said, we've never really seen them. We haven't observed them. We have no idea what they are, what they'd yeah. be capable of. So you can throw tachyon in front of anything. And, well, <laughs> and Star Trek actually surprisingly uses it pretty consistently because tachyons always travel faster than light. So the concept of causality is like out the window. So mm. when Admiral Janeway in, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, travels mm-hmm. through time, yeah. um, there's an abundance of tachyons that come through the wormhole first that indicate there's a time travel happening. And then mm. in Enterprise, when they discover Daniels, they discover that he's a time traveler because of an abundance of tachyons in his quarters. And so they oh. use it pretty consistently in the yeah. sense that the time travel just inherently breaks causality, as do tachyons. And so they're okay. just okay. together. So yeah. they're at least using it in universe in a consistent way. Yeah. Well, not even yeah. not even just in universe and Watchmen, they use tachyons to keep Doctor Manhattan from seeing the future. Ozymandias does that to keep him from seeing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So I do kind of see that across sci-fi in general. Tachyons, while used kind of however they want, they a little loosey goosey, but yeah. in terms to time travel to either mask or convey or indicate well, time travel. It's kind sometimes. of like. I think this was what Pike in disco season two or something where he's like, if you just throw space in front of stuff or like time, like time, time crystals, if you just put time in front of stuff, it sounds great. So there's like tachyon storms and tachyon fields and just slap in front of stuff. And once we understand those a little better, they'll have something else that they'll slap in front of everything and use that pretty much for whatever the future is. Makes sense. Wow. Okay. Is that the oh, extent yeah. of your time travel questions? That David? is, that was the extent of my time travel. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I said, we could start breaking down individual theories and why they're relevant and blah blah blah. I don't well, want to do that to our listeners. No. I think Jeff's head might pop. I don't. Okay. <laughs> that would well, be no, a whole actually, other let me, let me ask episode. Tamara something then, because we talk about our materials a little bit. Um, yeah. Is there any known or theoretical material that could withstand either the gravity or the time dilation of time travel? Like, how would you build a time ship or a time time machine? You could make anything theoretically, right? 
I mean, theoretically, yeah. We get, we you grab yourself an, an English phone box and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a police box, Phil. Yeah. Well, for I mean, instance, dilithium is that something real? Closet, come out, you know. <laughs> is dilithium a real substance that exists but doesn't have those mm-hmm. properties, or is that something a hundred percent made up? Totally, totally. Made oh, okay. Up. Part of the, just like the, part of the canon. Just like the beryllium sphere in Galaxy Quest, and yep. and on through. Okay. <laughs> so so there's no way we could theoretically construct one but but then i guess you you don't know what the stresses of would be on a ship like if gravity affects it or if time rips a ship a ship apart or something i mean it would it would be an intriguing thing right like to find out what we could send in so would we ever get it back you know <laughs> like yeah. what you could send in and it still exists like we you know we just don't have that that line of sight yet i mean and i think okay. dr aaron could probably speak way more to whether or not we you know we just got the first picture right a couple years ago yeah. of, of, of black hole so like knowing what kind of materials we could throw in and it still come back out i think it's a ways off <laughs> mm. well and this is so um i remember this dr aaron from your uh lecture on the cruise um is that people often say they want to travel in time. And I remember in the film Time Machine and um, where he stays stationary ge- geographically, but time <laughs> changes, but you would not stay stationary because the earth is spinning and we're moving in the universe. So that's <laughs> yeah. why you need to travel in space and time and not just. Yeah. Time. You have to anchor yeah. it to yeah. a point in space. One. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I given hearing how much Tamara has done like random math, I think you'll also appreciate how much math I did trying to figure out <laughs> if you went forward. Because I, I, I asked that question. I was like, what if I built a time machine and I didn't change my spatial coordinates and I just changed my time coordinates and I just tested it by going one second into the future, taking into account the rotation of the Earth, the Earth around mm-hmm. the sun, the sun around the Milky Way and the Milky Way throughout our universe. I discovered that in one second you would end up about rough estimate 750 kilometers above the surface of the earth <laughs> so oh, like would not low go well. earth orbit oh. but you were in no. space so <laughs> which yeah. i always have to give a nod to marvel and x-men comics because they've used that with shadow cat and her abilities to travel through matter mm-hmm. to let her pass through the earth real fast by detaching herself essentially from the rotation of the earth and and so on it's yeah. I nerded out a little bit when I read that. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) just throw it in there. Just casually throw that into conversation. Absolutely. Um, Well, I think I know we're coming up to about about an hour and a half. Um, There are about a million other questions that we could ask, but let's cap it there. Um, Maybe we'll do a follow up episode sometime. Maybe if we can (laughs) ever wrangle that because this has been a fascinating conversation. Good. Um, so, uh, thank you to both of you for, uh, doing this. This was super fun and I, I love nerding out and just learning about all this stuff, especially from experts. So, uh, thank you both. Yay. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, where can people find you guys online, social media? What projects are you guys working on? Uh, Dr. Aaron, let us know. 
Yeah, I'm. I can be found at Dr. Aaron Mack um, on Twitter and Instagram, and now TikTok. Uh, it's D R E R A N M A C. And um, in terms of upcoming projects, I mean, I'm really focusing on writing and producing. I'm doing a short film. I'm co-producing with my friend Mary Chifo, who's our good Chancellor Laurel from mm, Star Trek awesome. Discovery seasons one and two. Um, that should be coming out later this year. We're submitting to festivals this summer, and so keep an eye out for that. And um, yeah, hit me up on the socials. I love it. Thank you. Absolutely. And if you're at a convention, go say hi to, to Dr. Aaron. You, you're always uh, your lectures are fun and Thank it's you. it's just enjoyable. Yes, I have a great time. I think I think after this episode airs, the next convention I'm doing is Starfest Denver, uh, which is going to be in May. So keep an eye okay. out for that. Will you be in Vegas? I was going to say, we're going to be in Vegas this year. Are you going to be there? I don't think so now that okay. the official convention has changed to oh yeah because you got to do oh, that's yeah. fair. gotcha fair enough All right. <laughs> work stuff yeah. disappointing yeah. but yeah. fair <laughs> tamara where can we find you uh so i am at the real tamara robertson on facebook instagram tiktok don't have high expectations uh and um i think everywhere else and then uh i'm also tlinar85 on twitter uh you can find all my links to everything i'm working on um uh at www.therealtamarobertson.com backslash links uh, but I'm, you know, we're going to be launching volume two of uh, our STEM outreach comic, Seekers of Science, this fall. So episode five should be coming out shortly. Um, and then Maker Science, you'll be seeing some new episodes dropping soon on the Midnight Science Club YouTube channel. And then after this episode comes out, I will be at in England speaking at Maker Central. So if you are across the pond, come see me. Let's have a pint. We'll talk making and how to inspire future makers and STEM leaders uh, and keep the kiddos going. That's awesome. Is that just like a big makers conference over there? Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. a big makers and content creator contest, contest, content. Mm. <laughs> it is a <laughs> convention, a <giant> thing. convention <laughs> thing. Yes. <laughs> All That's the awesome. makers assemble uh, and no one dresses up sadly, but it's still fun. <laughs> awesome. And you do have a podcast. Talk about that. Oh, real quick. Yeah. Yeah, so season two of Tinkering Bells will be coming out uh, this month as well. And so check it out on everywhere that you stream your podcasts. Uh, it's all BAMP female amplifiers, uh, or it's amplifying, gosh, I swear, this is why you cannot <laughs> drink scotch. <laughs> Some of us do. No, um, Some of us do. are less than 100 pounds. <laughs> so it's not a Sorry. So yes, uh, Tinkering Bells season two will be coming out. It's where all the podcasts are and we're amplifying one BAMP female maker at a time. Absolutely. Awesome. And you just had Lauren on who was previously Castle Corsetry, now Lauren St. Laurent, oh. who we have had on several times and her mm -hmm. husband as well. She's awesome. She does fantastic Friends, her work. Her husband, everybody around her. <laughs> yeah, yes. we've gotten a She's lot of good referrals from them. So. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, great. Um, that's it for us. I don't David, do you want to do our thing? To I'll do our thing. Us? Yeah, Fine. absolutely. Do our thing. Yeah, check us out at nerdtrekpodcast.com. We have links to all of our social media sites on there. You can see us staring at you in the Meet the Nerds section. Uh, you can buy some of our stuff at Cafe Press, and we'll be thankful. And whenever you are done talking about science till your head pops, you can give us a five-star rating and review, and we'll read it out over the air. Absolutely. Thank wow. you, everyone, for listening. Um, we do appreciate it. And this is just a great, fun episode. Um, but that's it for us. 
we will catch you on the next one. Bye. See ya. Thank you.